Before we get started, let me uh, remind you also that we will be returning to the book of Isaiah next week. This is just one one date we're going to do that one night we're going to do this uh, in order to get a head start on a, a course that is so terribly important to us. What does it mean to be a disciple? It says in the in the title there, it had it up there. Follow me, the cross and the life of the believer. But it's important to note in that that the emphasis is on the follow me part. The cross is a necessary step, but it's a step which gets you onto a path. And the emphasis in the Lord's teaching is the path that you can go on. It's very much like buying a ticket to go somewhere that you want to be. Say you wanted to buy a ticket to cross the country to visit your family. In order to get that ticket, you're going to have to pay a price. Once you have the ticket, you get on the plane. The emphasis isn't on the price of the ticket. The emphasis is on where you get to go once you've gotten on the plane. As we, as we think about this matter concerning the cross and the, or the idea of being a disciple, the follow me is the important part. Now tonight we're going to be looking at the call of the man Levi. We know him as Matthew, the apostle. I believe it's, again, this is for me personally, I find this to be one of the most moving stories in the entirety of the New Testament. Now, again, that's that's personal. Maybe it's because of my own personal interaction with that story. But I want to think about it tonight. But before we get going, I want to look at three passages. Because in the Gospels, in the book of Mark, or Matthew and Mark and Luke, the story is always told with these other two stories attached to it. Three stories that come together. And so I want to read all three of them. They're all rather moving passages. The first, and we're going to take it from the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. It says, And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. From the book of Luke, we find out that this man was full of leprosy, and because leprosy is rather slow-developing disease, it means he had had it for a while. And as a leper, he had to go out and stay away from other people, cut off from regular human society, forced into a very a terrible place, cut off from his family, cut off from everything. He already had seen Jesus heal, and he realizes that the healing capacity of Jesus is there. The only question he has in his mind is, does he count? Is his life, which has now been covered with leprosy for a long period of time, is it worth the Lord's effort? Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. It's a tremendous story. Because the next step is, it's important to this, the conversion, the call of Levi. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. I wonder how long it had been since a person who didn't have leprosy had reached out and touched him. It was the illegal thing to do. You, you weren't allowed to, to have physical contact with those people, even if they were in your family. I'm willing and as a gesture of, of the compassion that he has that is noted in, in one of the other stories, he reached out and said, I, I'm willing, be cleansed, and immediately 
his leprosy was cleansed. Then we go over to chapter 9, verse 2. Jesus has been away. He's been out of the city of Capernaum where he ministered or where he was based at this particular time. He has just returned. And it seems that he is at his house at this particular moment. He's living there, so he had to have a home to stay in. And it says, and they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, you remember this story from the counts in Luke and, or, yeah, Luke and Mark. And they brought him and they couldn't get there, so they had to let him. This is the man they let down through the roof. They, they broke in and, and let him down. But here it just says that they brought him the paralytic lying on a bed. <clears throat> and seeing their faith, that is the faith of the men who brought him, then the man himself, all of their faith. Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? Which is easier to do? To run around telling people their sins are forgiven or to tell somebody who has been laying on a bed has no capacity to move, get up and walk. He says, so that you can understand, so that you'll know. This is what he goes on to say. Let's read it here. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and he went home. Now, apparently his home was very close. That will be important to us in just a moment. In the book of Luke, the the next story is connected directly with this. The thought is there that after after the people glorified God and and dispersed from this home, the Lord immediately goes, and we find the story that's in in chapter 9, verse 9. And as Jesus went on from there... He saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Well, let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer as we look at this passage together. Father, we come before you and we give you thanks for your word. We come to give you thanks for the great heart of compassion you have. Your capacity to meet men in their needs. And so we're coming and we're thankful for that tonight. And we're asking for that ministry of the Spirit of God to our own hearts, enabling us to see the Lord high and lifted up and seeing Him to follow Him. So we're coming and trust you for that and we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in my uh, time as a student here, we had a course on doctrine and in that doctrine course, the doctrine of the Word of God. And one of the lines, one of the, the, the points that we were, met, were made to us is the Word of God has to be looked at as both a divine and a human book. That every word that's in the Word of God is there because the Spirit of God wants to tell us something and so He arranged that it would be there. But there is another sense to the Word that we can think about it, that every word is in the Word of God because somebody was impressed to put it there. So that the Spirit of God works on men to impress them to put put this down. The entire story of the Lord's ministry, it's three and a half years of ministry. 
is condensed in the Gospels, or not all of them, but in each one of the Gospels is condensed to a length which is less than three hours in reading time. You can read through it out loud in three hours, which means that a three and a half year ministry is reduced, say even if it was as much as four hours, is reduced greatly. How was it? What was important to those disciples? How did they decide what messages to put in? What to leave out? And when something comes up in each of the Gospels, that's an important story. The story of the conversion of Levi, or this call of Levi, is recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. And that's interesting, because this is all we know about Levi. He's listed as Matthew in the Gospels. After this story is finished, after he has the party that follows, there is no other mention of him ever saying anything. There's not one word that he ever said or ever doing anything. Now, it doesn't make him unimportant, but it's interesting. We could understand why the call of Peter and Andrew and James and John, why they would be in there. They're the, they're the core. These are the the big men among the disciples. But why Matthew's story? What made his story so memorable to them that it was recorded there? Well, we don't know the answer to that exactly. I mean, we're guessing what's in people's minds, and we can't do that in a sense. But there's really only two reasons why that story would be so, have such a big impact on them. One has to do with the shocking nature of, of Levi being called. The second is the the fact that Levi acts so decisively when he is called. Let's think about the first one uh, for a moment. Levi is a tax collector. Now, he's called here Matthew, but he's called in the other uh, two Gospels. He's called Levi. That was his name. He's Levi, the son of Alphaeus. He is a tax collector. Now, in order to get the impact of the story, we have to understand that a tax collector is a despised character. You probably have heard that before. He's not one of the highest ranking tax collectors. He hasn't reached that place where you're the one who has the farm that runs the whole thing. It's filthy well. He's not like Zacchaeus, who was at the very top. But he is on his way up, and tax collectors were despised for a number of reasons. One, because they worked for the Romans and were seen as traitors to the nation. The second reason is they had it, as the Romans, the way they worked it is if you had the right to collect the taxes, as long as you paid the Romans, they looked the other way concerning what else you collected. They tended to be rather dishonest men in order to pad their own pockets, and so they were viewed with that kind of contempt. There is also the fact that because they were constantly in contact with the Romans and other traders that were going up and down the road, those men were always ceremonially unclean, had to be left out of things. They were despised so much that they were put on the same level with the prostitutes. There were the, the publicans and the prostitutes. When, the, when it says publicans and sinners, most of those sinners were people that were sinning in an immoral fashion. And they were in that particular category of individuals. These were despised people. Now, to get the 
the impact, the shocking nature of this story, we have to do a little bit of, uh, we have to use our imagination for just a few moments. We have to move to the city of Capernaum. Because sometimes when we read these Bible stories, we just, I don't know, we just, we just don't think about what's actually happening. The city of Capernaum only covered 14 acres. It's not a city anyway. That was a, that was a misnomer there. It is a village. It's just a small place. Now, just to get that in perspective, the Institute property from North Parker Road, this direction, to the back side, and from side to side this way, is 22 acres. So that the entire city of Capernaum would fit between where we're... If this was the Sea of Galilee, right here. This isn't the Sea of Galilee, but if it was the Sea of Galilee, the entire community would fit between here and North Parker Road, and it was stretched out this direction. It's not a very large place. At the time the Lord was living there, estimates are that between two and 3,000 people lived in that town, probably on the lower number. All right, that, again, different people have different opinions, but probably the lower number. They lived in houses that were stacked together. The houses in those days in the villages tended to be back to back. They were, they were made in long rows with, with narrow alleys in between. And that story with the man dropped down through the ceiling, the reason they would have to do that is because as a crowd gathered, probably at Jesus' own house, his own residence, as that crowd fills up the narrow pathway, the only way to get there is to go over the top. They were smashed together. Now, <clears throat> to get the full impact of the story, you have to think about that. Two or three thousand people, that might seem like a lot of people right here, but if you had lived with them your entire life, you would know every one of them. I went to a high school that had three thousand people in it, three thousand kids. I think I knew, I knew of about two-thirds of them. And I was only there for three years. But you know who this person is and who that person is and who these are and the, these are the football players and these are this group and these you learn about them, but that's just that's just with a couple of years. These people had lived together, so I just we got to get this in perspective. Peter and Andrew and James and John's boats are right over there, within hundred yards of this place. They couldn't be much further than hundred yards from where I'm standing. So that when Peter and Andrew and James and John are called, everybody in this village is going to know. They're going to know what's going on there. All those stories that we, we read about there uh, in the city of Capernaum, everybody knows about this. Now, there were a lot of tax collectors in the city of Capernaum. There were two main professions in the city of Capernaum. There were fishermen. That's what Peter and Andrew and James and John were. And then there were those who serviced the caravans that went up and down. If it was out there where North Parker Road is, there was a main highway that went from the coast of Israel to Damascus. And it went right past this area of, of Capernaum. Right, if you were, again, this is just to get that perspective here, by the time you get up to, if you know where it is, Wakefield Lane, you're actually in a different political region. And any time in those days when you move from one political place or political area to another political area, 
you paid taxes. The reason why there were so many tax collectors there is to collect the taxes on all those caravans going up and down that road. But it was bigger than that because there was also traffic coming in. This is on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, and stuff was coming across the lake, and it would be taken after it came across in the boats and joined up with the caravans, and all that had to be taxed. So there was a tax office, if you think about the the road going out that you're going to take out tonight, from the lake to the road, there is a kind of a major thoroughfare, just a, a big plaza type of situation. That's where one tax office is. Out on that road out there, there is another tax office. There were dozens of tax collectors who worked these offices. The reason why the centurion whose servant was healed was there is because there was also a Roman garrison or a Roman band stationed there in order to protect the taxes that were being taken in by the tax collectors. Now, to get that, again, why we go through all that? Peter's mother-in-law lives right over here. The boat's right over there. What took place in when that 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 uh, man being dropped through the ceiling would have taken place right here on this campus, all right? When when the mother-in-law was healed, that takes place right here. Now, if we had lived here, I don't know if you'd ever lived in a small town. I did live in a small town in Pennsylvania. What happens in one place is news everywhere. What else do you talk about? Now, that was pre, pre-internet pre days when you didn't do it that direction. But what do you talk about? You talk about what happened to so-and-so's dog or what took a place over there and how so-and-so ran into so-and-so over there. Do you think all those stories haven't gotten out? They haven't been related. Now, the problem with this story is this man, Levi, most... Scholars believe that Levi was the last of the apostles to be called. He was a tax collector. Now, we don't know any more than what the story tells here. We have to fill in the rest of the details by guessing, and you have to be, and I will keep saying, this is a guess, this is a guess. But imagine what that would be like. Imagine the person that you most dislike, or let's just say not dislike, despise. Despise because of something in their character or something in their conduct which bothers you. A crooked judge. A crooked businessman. A a drug dealer. Whatever it is that makes you infuriated. Whatever it is, again, this is an age when people don't get infuriated. I realize that. But nevertheless, think through it. Who is it that you don't think is worthy of, of going on? Who is it that you would want sitting beside you in church? If you want to put it that way. Imagine a day when Jesus walks down right through the middle of this village where Peter and Andrew live, where Zebedee also lives, where the mother-in-law lives. Good Jewish people. People have been to the synagogue. People have done the right thing. They're following Jesus. This is wonderful. And Jesus walks up to one of those tax collectors and says, join me. 
says, follow me, but for our purposes, join me, join the group. This would have been a horrifying experience. You can tell how much it bothered the disciples because right after the man, lo and behold, he does join, he, he throws a party. And basically, the party is for the, the other guys that are tax collectors. And Jesus is in there having a party with the tax collectors and sinners, and the disciples are outside. They are not even inside. They don't know what to do with this. This is their hometown. This is not a tax collector from Nazareth. This is their tax collector. This is the guy they've said nasty things about. And now he's on the team. And the Pharisees, and they sent people up there and they asked him, why does your, why does your master do this? Why is he involved in this? And you know what they said? Duh. They didn't say anything. This is hitting them hard. They do not know what to say. And Jesus has to come to their rescue because it's a terrible event. Now, I want to give the moving part to me is the way Matthew describes it. The way Matthew describes it is important for us. When Mark describes it, he said there was a tax collector, or there was Levi, the son of Alphaeus, and was a tax collector, and Jesus came and spoke to him. When Luke describes it, he just says that it was Levi, a tax collector, sitting in his office. When Matthew describes it, he uses a different term. This is the way he says it. Let me just try to get the words out there. And it says, as he came, he observed, and Jesus, as he went, he left and he, and he observed it's, it's more than just he, he ran into somebody. He, he stood and, and watched this man, Levi. And it says, that's the first part. He observes him. He looks at him. He's, he's, he's face to face with him. He's thinking about him. And then it says this. It was a man. He's, what did Jesus see? He saw. What did he observe? He observed a man. He did not observe a tax collector. He observed a person. I guess that to me is one of the most powerful statements in the Word of God there. That as far as how God views us, he, he saw a person, an individual. And that individual's name was Matthew. Now this, this caused a little bit of difficulty. I'll just tell you that we don't know. His name officially is Levi. He's the son of Alphaeus. That's the way, because of the association with Alphaeus, we pretty much are sure that's what his name was. Many people had a second name, a, a nickname, a second name. Thomas was called Didymus, and those, those things happen. They happen today, they happen then. It is possible that Levi did also go by the name Matthew. It is also possible that Levi when he decided to follow Jesus, took on the name Matthew. He did it himself. Leaving this all behind, he takes on a new name. It's also possible that Jesus renamed him Matthew. After all, he did rename Simon, called him Peter. He renamed the James and John and called them the Sons of Thunder. He had a habit of, of referring to men by other names, so it's possible. We don't know that. But what we do know is what Jesus saw there. 
Because that name is always associated with what Matthew was after he started to follow Jesus. Before then, he's Levi. After that, he is Matthew. And the thought here is, this is how Matthew understood it. That when Jesus came to him at that particular place, he looked at him and he saw a man who had potential in Jesus for the future. That's important to us. We have a tendency to think of who are we. We are this, we are a resume. We have done this. We've had this education. We have accomplished these many things. Um, I am a Bible teacher. I am a this. I'm a, you know, I'm a family. I've got this. This is my wife. This is my family. This is my residence. This is the size of my house. This is the car I drive. And, and in this case, this, Jesus just strips all that away. But for us tonight, what's really important is a person. Not the things you've accomplished, not the name you have, not the family you're from. Matthew doesn't even include his father in this. I don't know whether that's because he is ashamed of the past that he has developed here or what it is, but he's stripped it all away. Your family ties, your job, everything is pulled away. And it says, and, and Jesus saw that man. And that man was Matthew. And he called him. And he became part of the team. I wonder what you have in your, in your life. This is important. We've got to go quickly on to the next section. But how do you view yourself? It's a wonderful day when we get to the place where we realize that we're just a person before God. A person that he can take. As I've said many, many times, it's one of the great privileges of standing here and telling you the gospel. What you have done to this point is really not important. It's the person that God can take a man and make him that really counts. He saw a man, a man named Matthew. Remember that Matthew means a gift from God. That's one of the reasons I believe personally, but again... That's, that's a, I have no proof of this, that Jesus gave him that name. I think because of the fact that you, we would have to face this, it's going to take the disciples a while to accept the fact that Matthew is on the team, that Levi, a tax collector, is from our hometown, is on the team. And Jesus makes a, an effort, that's what I believe. That he made an effort to help him in. That I'm going to rename him. And he's going to be named, as far as I'm concerned, a gift from God. But there's a second side of the story. Again, another reason why it could be um, that it's recorded. And that's because of the decisive nature of what Matthew does when he's called there. The decisive nature of what takes place. Now, again, remember the stories as as they develop here. First of all, there's the story of the cleansing of the leper. What would have that meant to, to a man like, like Matthew? Matthew is also a man who's despised. Now, people wouldn't have been required to stay apart from, but they did. The reason that they fellowshiped with the prostitutes wasn't just an immorality thing. It was just that's who was left over to fellowship with and here, here's a story a story about a man 
who was a leper, who Jesus healed. He had compassion on him. Then just prior to this, and, and it has to be somehow an impact on Matthew at this particular time, is the story of a man who was put down and he's been brought by his friends. He's on a pallet. He cannot move. He's paralyzed. And he's laying there in front of Jesus. And everybody is expecting Jesus to say what he can say, just like he said to the the leper, be cleansed, to say to that man, get up and walk. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He looks right past the need of that man laying on that pallet and sees right to the heart of his actual need. What's really going on inside that needs to be touched? And what's that? A sense of guilt. And he speaks to that man and says, Son, take courage. Your sins are forgiven. I don't know what they were. I don't know what he's talking about. But those sins were forgiven. And then the man is is raised. Now, again, just to get our picture straight, he went home that day. He lives in Capernaum. That's, That's the implication of the story. Everybody in Capernaum would have known who that was. Everybody in Capernaum would have known who brought him, including Matthew. There's a very good possibility that in that crowded in that crowded street, Matthew himself was there. We don't know that. But somehow this story has been linked to what takes place next in Matthew's experience. Now the, the next part of the story as we go into there is is a little bit kind of scary. At least to me, when I was little, I didn't like that story very much. Guy walks up to you on the street. Follow me. That's why I heard this, you know. <laughs> and I was afraid that God was going to, you know, he's going to come and I was going to have to know to follow him. Mom said not to do that. All right. And I can miss everything by just not going. And it was, you know, and so you get this sort of impression that the story is about a man who, who when Jesus said, follow me, sort of blanked out. And does one of those Pied Piper stares and away he goes, dreaming and, and, you know, floating off with Jesus. But it's not like that at all. And again, if we go back to the story, remember that Jesus is, he's in this city. He's been in that city for months. He has been teaching there. He has been healing there. He has been working there. And Matthew, it seems, has been observing there. Now, again, we don't know for certain exactly what's going on, but he would have heard about the miracles. This is his hometown. And again, I want to say, if if tonight in this auditorium we had people went through the miracles that were being done by Jesus in his hometown, in, this, in the town of Capernaum, we should put it there, not his hometown, but in the town of Capernaum, I can guarantee you the news would get out even in this present day. News would travel and people would know. So it's not as if Levi doesn't know who Jesus is. Jesus is also taught in Capernaum. He is taught on the streets. I can imagine, I don't know, again, we don't know the story, but we can imagine Levi sitting there at his tax collector's booth and listening to Jesus. Because if he preaches down by the lake, which he did 
some of these occasions, that's right here and Levi's right there. And he would have had a chance to hear those. He would have had a chance to listen to people on the street talk about this man and what's going on. I'll say also that, again, there's, there's real problems with the exact timing of events and your opinions of how they all went. But as I read through the book of Matthew and listen to what he, he presents on the story, on the Sermon on the Mount, to me that sounds like a sermon that a person heard when God was dealing with their heart. Now, I don't know if that's happened to you, but you know, we hear a lot of sermons. I've heard a lot of sermons in my life, all right? But there are some I remember even 50, almost 50 years after the fact. Because they were the sermons when God was gripping my heart. And there was an attentiveness that night that was more than just that I was listening. It was the Spirit of God gripping me and making it stick. There is a sense as you read through, if you read through the book or read through the, the Sermon on the Mount, that the man, how could you catch all that? How could you remember all that? Just even if you were there listening. But if you were listening there, and as you were listening, the Spirit of God was speaking to your heart about what's real and what's not real. It it makes sense to me. Now, again, I don't know that he was there, but it would have been real easy for him to go out when Jesus went out and preached that sermon. There's all those things that he had done. He had also observed the lives he had seen. Peter and Andrew and James and John. He would have known them by name. And when they started to follow, he would have had a chance to see them follow. It's not as if this is an unknown factor to him. Now, we don't know what the details of the, of the interaction was. But we have every indication that there, there's something else behind it. And I say that for this reason. God isn't calling you to make an emotional following of Him. He's asking you to make an intelligent following of Him. In fact, in, in the parable of the sower, He warns against moving emotionally. So there's some people who hear the message and they, they jump them and they're going to run after Jesus, but they don't take time. They don't take time to think about what it means. And when they get out there, they falter. I'm always kind of a little bit, I have to admit, after all these years, I'm a little bit nervous when, when entertainers suddenly are converted. I hope they are. I'm not against them being converted. I'm not against them standing for the Lord. But I've seen too many of them who stood for the Lord for a while and then they stop. They make a big show and then they collapse. And when they collapse, they are a testimony just like they were a testimony before. But Jesus tells us that they're going to be that kind. Now, what the Lord's looking for is people who will listen intelligently to the message, think it through, count the cost, count what it means, understand it, and then act on it. So I believe he passed day after day, passed going by Matthew and not calling him. Why? Because he wasn't ready yet. But something had happened apparently on that particular day. And I don't know, 
But I wonder if the guilt that had piled up in Levi's heart suddenly came to his he came to him. And he listened and he heard what had happened. Son, your sins are forgiven. And he realized that the one who had been teaching in that town was capable, was had the authority, had the right to forgive his sins. Well, whatever the situation was, Jesus met him. It's a little hard to determine whether he was in the the Sea of Galilee tax office or out on that road tax office. Just the different stories. It's a little hard to pin exactly where he was, but Jesus comes up to him and speaks to him. And he only says two words. I think this is just real important to us. He says two words. His entire message is follow me. Now, that's not the entire gospel. Let's be clear about that. That is not the entire gospel. You have to know more than that to be a, to be a real follower. But that's all you have to do to respond. That's all. In, in those two words is summed up everything you have to do to respond. It was Jesus' most common way of telling people what they needed to do. Follow me. Follow me. Then you have this tremendous story. Matthew puts the emphasis in his story on the kindness of the Lord, the grace of God to him. By the time the story was retold and Luke goes to collect the information to write his gospel, it has been it's been retold and it's been a new emphasis has come in, which would be the emphasis of how the others would have seen it. From Matthew's perspective, it was just the grace of God that he even asked me to be on the team. The thing that stood out to the others was what Matthew did. And I want to, to look at this, and it's on the back page there. As we, you see there's the three accounts that are in the different books. Well, look at what it says in the book of Luke. And after that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. That part's all the same. Now listen to the way it says it here. And he left everything behind, and he got up and began to follow. He left everything behind. That's where it starts. And it it should be, if you're going to keep it real close to the, the Greek there, it would be in leaving everything behind and getting up, He began to follow. Now, I don't know if that hits you as backwards, and we can't make again too much of all this, but it's interesting that it doesn't read the way I would have naturally written it. Here's the way I would have written it. And he got up and left everything, because how can you leave everything before you get up? If you're going to keep this in order, you get up, you leave everything, and you follow. But that's not the way it's put. And that's very important to us. It's going to be important as we go through this matter of what it means to really follow the Lord, what, what he's calling us to do. Here's what he says. And leaving everything while he is still sitting there, a transaction takes place in his heart. A decision is made. A decisive purposing takes place. And that decisive purposing is this, that he's going to let go of everything. No disciple that was called that we know of paid a bigger price to follow Jesus 
than Levi. After all, Peter and Andrew and James and John's boats are still in the water right back there. If this venture, if this exciting new teacher, if his program folds and and fails and everything goes to pieces, they can go back to their boat. After Jesus was crucified, that's where Peter went. I'm going back to my fishing. Jesus had to come and get him again. They could go back. But Levi sitting at that tax collector's office on that particular day knows that if he leaves this office today, he will never come back. And with the reputation that he has as a tax collector, he is not going to find a lot of friends in the future. He's out of this realm, the tax collector realm, and he has a history which will keep him out of this realm. If this fails, he loses everything. And on that day, it says this, Levi looked at the whole thing and left it all. He left it. If you would, he released it. He put it aside. His wealth, his potential, everything he had worked for, everything that he had hoped for, and he pushed it away. And then, having done that in his heart, he took the next step, was what? The easy part. Get up and leave. Get up and leave. Well, that's, that's also important for us. What does it really mean to follow? Well, it means to take decisive action. Not everybody is going to be required to do that. Not everybody is going to give up everything in an external way. But everybody is required to take the same decisive action in their heart. And that's what we're going to be seeing as we go through these details. On that day, Levi left it. And it seems that that the decisiveness of it and the immensity of what he was giving up impressed the other (laughs) disciples so that later on, when they are telling the story of the gospel to Luke, I say, you need to put this part in. You need to tell them what Levi did. Levi forever was Levi the, or Matthew, calls himself Matthew the publican. Nobody else ever mentions that. Nobody else puts it in there. He was a man who had been there and now is in a different situation. He walked away with the Lord. Now, the question comes, what does it really mean then to follow Jesus? What's the word mean? What's what's Jesus saying? Now, that's what we're going to be talking about with the students for the rest of the, or for the next couple of days. All the details that go with it. It is Jesus' most common way of of calling a person to be his disciple. What does he mean by it? Kenneth Weiss speaks about this, and he describes the word, and he says this, it's not a word which means to get behind someone and follow them like follow the leader. All right? Like, you know, play follow the leader, and a person walks, and if you put your arm up, everybody's got to put their arm up, and you all walk like little ducks in a row. This is not, that word doesn't imply that kind of a thought. What he says is this, that it means it's an invitation. To follow me is an invitation to accompany someone 
as they walk along. Remember, in that particular day, you get most everybody got from one place to another by walking. There's, I mean, very few wealthy people could ride a horse, but you had to be really wealthy to ride. If you were going to get from one place to another, you walked. And follow me as an invitation to walk alongside, to walk with me, to take the same road that another person takes. And the thought is that you're invited to take that road so that you can fellowship with the person along the way. Now, where the decisive feature comes in, when God speaks to us, is this. We were already on a way. And He has a different way. And when that comes to, to reality, that He's on this path and I'm on that path, if I am going to join Him on His path to fellowship with Him, I am going to have to leave another path. If I am going to take a, if I'm going to get in your car and you're going to be the driver, then I have to go where you're going to go. Where I would wanted to go before doesn't matter if you're already on a particular path. Jesus doesn't alter his path. We've been seeing that in Isaiah. That God had a plan from the beginning and he's going to the end. God's plan is moving down the line. It's not going to be changed by who we are. But God calls us to join Him on that path. So again, I want to say that I want to start off with this as we go through this with students because we will talk about what it means to take up a cross, but that's not the issue. That's not the, that's not the key issue here. It's not the, it's not the thing to focus on. It's a necessary step. But the, it's, it's not an invitation to take up a cross. It's an invitation to join the Lord Jesus Christ in life, and walk alongside of Him and fellowship with Him for the rest of your life. That's quite an invitation. Levi heard it, pushed back, and it says he began the process of following. He began the process. It was not, again, sometimes I I think of this because the cross can seem so bleak and so, oh, oh, the cross we have to bear. The thing that Levi did, apparently within a short period of time, is he declared a party. So for anyone who thinks that maybe Levi was just really, oh dear, I have to follow the Lord. I have to join Him. I have to take up my cross. Oh, poor me. What he did was he got all of his friends together. They were tax collectors too, and the rest that go with the tax collectors. And he got them all together and said, I want you to meet my friend. I want you to have an opportunity to know him just like I know him. We don't know how many or if anybody followed from that. But he is not upset about his calling. He's made a decisive step, taken a decisive step. He's in a new category. What does it mean to follow? It's an invitation by the Lord to join Him on His path. That's what Christianity is all about. It's about people who have been transformed. They have been taken off their path. They've stopped seeking their own kingdom. It's another way of putting it. What they seek first, the kingdom of God. 
They seek to know Him above everything else. They seek to walk with Him. They want to be like Him. They want to represent Him. They want to experience fellowship with Him. So again, if we ask tonight, it's, it's important. What does it mean to be a disciple? In a sense, it means to be a friend of Jesus on the road. Fellowshipping with Him as He goes down that path. In the next couple of days, we're going to be thinking as a student body there about the details. But I wonder tonight if you've ever actually done that. If you've ever heard the Lord speak to you, that's what he wants to do. He wants to come to human beings, not because they're important human beings. Not because they're good human beings. Not because they're half converted anyway, but human beings, souls that he created, persons that he created to fellowship with him. And he comes to them and he asks them to do this. Stop where you're going. Start coming with me. Follow me. Have you ever done that? It's a wonderful invitation to to absorb, to accept. It does cost. But what cost can be compared to what you gain. The chance to know God and to know Him well. It's a call to follow. Levi did it. And leaving everything. What a tremendous finish. And leaving everything, he got up and began a new life of following Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we give you thanks for the great opportunity to know you. I pray that you will meet each one of us, particularly in this superficial day, you'll meet us to enable us to understand and to follow through and to join you on your path. And we look to you forward in Jesus' name. Amen.